when you find that, I'm just going to stand on the reading of God's Word. It's at page 761 if you have a pew Bible. Mark 1, 21 through 34. They went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as one of the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, what business do you have with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. After throwing him into convulsions and crying out with a loud voice, the unclean spirit came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they debated amongst themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately, after they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. And they immediately spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she served him. Now when evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill, and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases, and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew who he was. The title of the message this morning is, The Power of of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you for the great power of Jesus that we see on display in this passage. We thank you, Father, we can know you. Lord, not just know about you, but actually know you, that you are a God who has made yourself known. You are a God who has revealed yourself through your word, through your son, and your spirit is ever drawing us to know you better. Help us, O God, to never be satisfied in our knowledge of you. Help us to never be satisfied until we grow ever more. Father, we want to be as much like Jesus as we possibly can. We we want our minds, Father, to be filled with our knowledge of who you are and what you're like. Father, we want to know you very well so that we can accurately display you to the watching world. We want to know you very well so that when... Things arise in our life. Lord, we'll know how we ought to respond and what it is we ought to do. We want to be your disciples. We want to be your people who live very carefully for your glory. Father, fill me today with the Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. That I could speak your word and your ways for your glory. Open our hearts today to receive what you have for us. Let the message challenge us and change us. Enlarge our faith to give us a greater view of who Jesus is and what He came to do and what He can do. Father, let us have faith to take You at Your Word and do what You've said. We love You, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, this passage is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And as we see, people immediately stand up and take notice. They're amazed at the authority with which He teaches, and they're amazed at the power which He displays in His power over evil spirits and His power over sickness. As He does these things, His fame begins to immediately spread. Now, the events of this passage, of course, they really happen. This isn't a story. This isn't a parable. Jesus really went out teaching, and he really cast out demons, and he really healed the sick. And these events remind us why Jesus is so great. These events remind us of why Jesus is 
worthy of our worship, why He is someone we should definitely give our lives to serve and to do His will. And these passages also remind us of the power of Jesus. Jesus, we see, and, and we'll see all throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has absolute power to heal, to save, and to deliver. The reality of, of the absolute power of Jesus has a, a legitimate impact on the way we live our lives. should have a legitimate impact on the way we serve Jesus by serving others. Right? And, and our key truth from this today is the absolute power of Jesus to deliver, heal, and save frees us to live and serve in confidence. Now, live and serve are both important aspects of striking a contrast with the unbelieving world around us. The contrast brought by living and serving Jesus in just absolute confidence of His power, it gives us opportunities to not only live in a way that's different from the unbelieving world around us, but gives us a way to serve Jesus by serving others. It gives us a way to pass along the hope we have within us. And, and I don't know how, what you see in the world. I see the world is in desperate need of hope. People are hopeless. People are desperate. People are despondent. And the hope they need is the hope from Jesus. But they're not going to get that unless we are free right, to live and serve in confidence. Unless we are convinced of the absolute power of Jesus to deliver, heal, and save it frees us to live for Jesus and to serve Jesus confidently. The world will see that. They take notice of our lives. They take notice of how we give of ourselves to others. And they begin to ask us about the hope we have within us. Now this passage, it demonstrates the absolute power of Jesus in two different ways. And with each way, His power is demonstrated. What I want to do is give, a, give two applications. One, a personal, how to live. And one, a ministry, how to serve. With each one. So first, Jesus has absolute power over the enemy. Now Mark's gospel, maybe more than all the others, shows us how frequently Jesus came into conflict with demons. Mark's gospel makes it clear. We live in a physical world with a spiritual reality. Demons really exist. And demons really afflict and enslave people. They did then. And they do now. And in every instance, as we'll see, Jesus has the power to set demonized people free. This is an important concept. Jesus has absolute power over the enemy. Now, it's interesting to me. Our very first encounter with a demonized man takes place at the synagogue. At church, so to speak. This demonized man is gathered in a place dedicated to the worship of the living God. Now, Jewish synagogues didn't have like a whole lot of first-time visitors. right? You were raised in a synagogue. You raised your kids in there. They went there. Jewish people in the town. There weren't multiple synagogues in the area. They all went there. So what we learn from this is this guy is almost certainly a Jewish man. Right? Because... One, it's a natural way you would read it, but also, anytime Jesus had an encounter with a Gentile, all of the gospel writers make a point to tell us the person was a Gentile. Absent that knowledge that this person was a Gentile, we're, we're left to gather this was a Jewish man who gathered in a Jewish synagogue 
to worship the Jewish God with all of the rest of the Jewish people. And he is demonized. He is almost certainly a regular in the synagogue. Again, there's no inclination that this guy is a dirty sinner from without. He's not a tax collector. We would have been told that. We're told those sort of things when they're in there. So the impression we get from this is we find a very religious, probably raised in a good Jewish home, probably at one point semi-devout, Jewish man gathered in the Jewish synagogue, and he is demonized. That's quite a sobering thought if you think about it. A lesson. Church is good. Morality is good. But neither are enough to set people free. People need more than a religious experience when we gather. They need more than snazzy music and an eloquent message. They need more than religious words and religious activities. They desperately need an encounter with Jesus. Jesus alone has the power to set people free. Without an encounter with Jesus, enslaved people can gather with us. They can sing with us. They can leave, listen with us. And then they can leave still enslaved. This is certainly not what we want for our gatherings. Now notice the man in verse 23. The man cries out. 23 and 24. The man cries out as Jesus begins to teach. Or after he taught. It's, it's not exactly clear at what point this happens. But I find it interesting because it seems the unclean spirit could handle religious instruction. But he couldn't handle Jesus. Whatever was going on in the synagogue before this did not bother the demon inside the man. But the moment Jesus began to teach, the moment Jesus began to speak, it upset the demon and he began to cry out. Now, I believe the demon is crying out in pain at the words and the power and the authority of Jesus. The words he cried out seemed to indicate this. What business do we have? Do you have with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Right? He's not like fighting with Jesus. This is a he's, this seems to be fearful. Why, why are you here? Why are you doing this? Are you going to destroy me now? He's begging for mercy, it appears. This unclean spirit may have the power to enslave a man, but he has no power over the Son of God. And he knows the Son of God has power over him, and so he begs for mercy. Jesus, in verse 25, tells the demon to shut up and to come out of him. And again, it's important to notice Jesus didn't carry out a long, drawn-out conversation. There was no, there was nothing other than be quiet and come out of him. He commanded it to hush. He commanded it to come out. And the demon did as he was commanded by Jesus. Came out. He threw the man into convulsions. And he cried out with a loud voice. And then the demon came out at the command and the authority and the power of Jesus. Jesus had absolute authority over unclean spirits and over all the power of the enemy. The people are amazed at his teaching. They're amazed at his power because he has authority over demons. Now, this is not unusual. As we go through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see Jesus' encounter with demons, with one exception, follow this pattern. 
The man with legions of demons in Mark 5 is the only time Jesus carries on any sort of a long, drawn-out conversation with him. He doesn't ask other demons, he doesn't ask their name, what their authority is, anything along those lines. Instead, he sees the man as demonized, he commands it to come out, and the demon comes out. We see in verses 32 through 34 that this becomes a kind of a way Jesus had. The people have heard that Jesus can set people free, and no one else around them can. And so they begin to bring their demon-possessed, their demonized friends and relatives to come to Jesus. Again, we, we see this, we're reminded in this, just the how open it is. That's one thing I think is startling for us. It is very open about this. Verse 32, evening came. They began to bring to him all those who were ill and who were demon-possessed. He healed them. He cast out many demons, but he would not permit the demons to speak. When Jesus commands, the demons always leave. Uh, he is absolutely in control. The demons never almost win. This is a power encounter or a power struggle, but Jesus is the one that has all the power. The demons have none. It's not like what you see in the movies where there's this big struggle between good and evil and good wins most of the time. It's not like that. Jesus says, come out. The demons come out. Jesus is the one who has all the power. Now, what does this mean for us? Just as a daily living our lives. Well, first it means we should live aware but unafraid of the spirit world. All this is real. Demons really exist. We're going to see the idea of demons over and over and over again as we go through the Gospel of Mark. Because as I said, Mark mentions it frequently. We'll do a long detailed study on demons when we get to Mark 5 and we see the man possessed with legions of demons. We need to be aware. It's real. This isn't symbolic. Demons aren't a metaphor. This isn't uneducated people who didn't know what was really going on in someone's life and so they called everything that was unusual a demon. No, no, it's none of those things. It is legitimately a demon who roams around the earth and has taken control of a human being and is either oppressing them, possessing them, controlling their lives. We need to be aware that's real. That, that is really what happened. That is really what happens in our world today. However, we should not live afraid of this. We live with it is real and it's there, but we are not living in fear and in terror. The absolute power of Jesus over the spiritual world, over the enemy, gives us Confidence to live confidently in this world. Jesus has given his authority to us. And so we can have victory over evil spiritual forces of the world. Jesus himself defeated them. And we get to take part in that victory. Now that, that's an important point. Jesus won the battle, not us. It's not how strong we are, it's how powerful he is. And because he has won, we get to take part in his victory. But when Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphed over them through him. The people of Paul's day, Colossians, they understood evil spiritual powers. They already believed in the spirit world and they believed that the vast majority of the spirit world was actively at work against them and hostile toward humanity. They didn't need to be convinced there was a spirit world and it was evil and bad. What they needed to be convinced of was they didn't have to live in fear of it. 
So even when people were redeemed by Jesus, they still believed in the spirit world. They understood this, but they still lived in fear. So Paul writes and he explains, Jesus has won the battle. And because Jesus has won the battle, those who are in Jesus don't have to live in fear of spiritual beings. Jesus has defeated them, and we get to take part in his victory. Now, when Paul says Jesus made a public display of them, he's painting a picture of total defeat of evil spiritual forces at the hand of Jesus. Jesus' sacrificial death and victorious resurrection publicly defeated and publicly humiliated all the evil spiritual powers of the world. He conquered them, and he is forever victorious over them. Satan is ultimately and forever defeated because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And this means we who are in Christ, who are disciples of Jesus, are free from the power of Satan to live in the power of Jesus. Again, that's an important concept because prior to coming to Jesus, we were not free from the power of Satan. Ephesians 2 makes it quite clear. All people who have not repented of their sins and believed in Jesus are in some ways influenced by the evil spiritual powers of the world. They follow the course of this world laid out for them by the prince of the power of the air. They are blind to the fact they are following a path laid out by evil spiritual forces and they are just dumbly following along. And Jesus is the one who sets people free from that. Disciples of Jesus, we have been freed from following the course laid out for us by the prince of the power of the air. Jesus has delivered us and he has given us victory over Satan's influence in our life. Now, that isn't to say there aren't things we can do that would give him influence in our life. Open ourselves up to him. Absolutely is. And and we don't have time this morning to talk about those things. We'll talk about them more probably in later weeks. The reality is this. We live in a world where there are evil spiritual forces all around us. And so while we are victorious over them, we don't live foolish either. We live aware of the fact they're here and they will, given the opportunity, come in, begin to torment, oppress, harass us in one way or another. Satan is a roaring lion, prowling about, looking for someone to devour. So we be careful, but we live confident. We are victorious over that. We don't have to let that happen in our lives. We don't have to be influenced and oppressed by evil. Jesus has won the victory. Not us. It's not by our power, not by our might, not by our goodness. It is solely because of Jesus Christ. He has won the victory and he enables us to take part in his victory. So as far as how we live, we live aware of the reality of the, of the spirit world around us. There are evil spirits. There are good spirits, angels. We're aware. But we're not terrified. We're not afraid of what the devil's going to do. We don't live in fear of the prowling, roaring lion. We are in Christ, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, who has conquered and disarmed and has made a spectacle of them. We are in his care. We are under his watch. And he is greater than all the spiritual powers of the world. So we live aware, but not afraid. The way we serve in light of this is we serve confident in Jesus' power to deliver and save. Every demonized person we see in God's word is in a very bad place. We don't know how any of them became demonized. But I feel it's probably accurate to say they have made some very poor choices in their lives that have opened themselves up to being demonized. They're in a place of deep spiritual darkness 
And yet Jesus was always able to completely deliver them. What Jesus did for people then, Jesus can do for people now. What he did for the people, the men and the people in this passage, he can do for anyone in our community and in our world today. We can serve people, serve Jesus by serving others, confident that anybody we encounter, they can be delivered and they can be saved through the power of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite examples of an individual who has done this way is the Apostle Paul. Look at how Paul described himself before he came to Jesus. He was previously a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Yet he was shown mercy because he acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul, prior to coming to Jesus, being saved, was a, a blasphemer. Paul rejected the idea of Jesus being the Messiah, so he did everything he could to oppose and to blaspheme the name of Jesus. In Paul's mind, Jesus was a fraud. And his life and his actions bore this out. Right? So keep that in mind. Paul wasn't just somebody who was basically good and kind of thought Jesus was okay and he got saved. He, he despised, he hated Jesus. But he hated Jesus more than just like Facebook posts hate Jesus. He also was a persecutor. Paul was so angry at the idea of Jesus being the Messiah, he sought to eliminate the name of Jesus from the earth by persecuting disciples of Jesus. He, he traveled all over the world with letters from Jewish religious leaders, giving him permission to arrest men and women who were Jewish men and women who were followers of Jesus Christ. Now, in our day, we, we see it, men and women, we don't think much about it. But in, when, when it was written, when Luke wrote that in the book of Acts, it was significant. In that day, women weren't seen as having like a free will to choose. Right? If I became a Christian, well then Kelly would become a Christian too. And in many cases, because she was a woman and I had made the choice first, she would be free of consequences. It wasn't like it was her choice. She had no choice but to follow her husband. And so most of the time, when they would go, when a family would deviate and they would go get them, the children and the women were free and the husband was taken, and he was brought to consequences for his actions. But not Paul. Paul was so hostile towards Jesus in the name of Jesus that he arrested anyone. If a woman said she was a disciple of Jesus and she was married and she had followed her husband, did not matter. He arrested her, he took her, and he gave all of them an opportunity. They could deny Jesus, or they could be arrested, and then eventually, probably, stoned to death. Remember, Paul was the official witness at the stoning of Stephen. He stood and looked on with approval as they took rocks and beat that man to death with him. Paul was a violent persecutor of the church. He was a, a violent aggressor. That he was a violent aggressor, it, it means, well, it means he was violent and aggressive toward disciples of Jesus. It, it, also, the Greek word used there carries with the idea almost of pleasure. So Paul's violent aggression toward disciples of Jesus wasn't just the nature of the way things were, just kind of what had to be done. You resist arrest, you face the power. He enjoyed what he did to hurt people. When Paul stoned people to death, he enjoyed 
the violence and the death he brought upon them. When Paul enslaved people and took them from their families and put them in prison and their lives were made miserable, he enjoyed the misery he inflicted upon these disciples of Jesus. This is who Paul was before he came to Christ, before Jesus saved him. But when Jesus saved him, he became none of those things. He became a a preacher, an apostle, a church planter, and a missionary. Well, what Jesus did for Paul, Jesus can still do today. No matter who we encounter out in the world, no matter how lost they may be, how deep in spiritual darkness they are, what they've given themselves over to, Jesus can set them free. Jesus can save them. It doesn't matter if they're blaspheming the name of Jesus. Jesus can save them. It doesn't matter if they actively oppose any concept of Christ and of salvation and of eternity. Jesus can save them. It doesn't even matter if they violently oppose Christianity. Jesus can save them. No matter what people do, no matter what people have done, none of them are beyond the delivering and the saving power of Jesus. So as we go out and we minister to others in the name of Jesus, power of the Spirit for Father's glory, We can do it with absolute confidence. Jesus can save this person, no matter who they are, what they're doing, or what they've done. The absolute power of Jesus over the enemy frees us to live and serve with confidence. So Jesus has absolute power over the enemy, but Jesus also has absolute power over sickness. After a long day of ministering to the Word and by casting out evil spirits, Jesus goes to Peter's house where he finds Peter's mother is sick, mother-in-law is sick. They tell Jesus about it. Jesus goes and he heals her. Evening comes, which means the end of the Sabbath. And they've all now heard about him casting demons out in the temp- in the synagogue. And so they all begin to bring their family members, their people who are sick, who are demonized, who have all of these issues. And they come to them and Jesus heals them, delivers them. And sets them free. Jesus, as we go through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see Jesus not only regularly cast demons out of people, He also regularly healed people. As we go through the Gospels, something I find interesting is Jesus doesn't heal people in the same way every time. Here He just does it. We don't know anything about it. He grabs Simon's mother-in-law and just sort of takes her by the hand and lifts her up, it appears. But... He healed somebody once by spitting in the man's eye. He healed someone once by making mud with his own spit and then put that mud in the man's eye and told him to go wash it off. He once told a group of lepers that they would be healed if they just went. And as they obeyed him and went to show themselves to the priest, their healing and their cleansing came. He healed some as he took them by the hand. He healed some with a word. The overall picture is that there was no one way Jesus did it. He just healed people in a variety of ways. He he healed people willingly. He healed people completely. He healed people because of His great power over all things. So what does this mean for us as we live in this world, as we try to live for Jesus? Well, we should live and pray expectantly. Something I find in my life as I read God's word is a deep longing for the displays of God's power and God's glory we see in God's word. I love reading the stories in Exodus where the glory of the Lord falls on the tabernacle 
And the congregation falls down under the weight of God's glory and they can't get up and minister and they just sort of lay on their faces before the Lord. I love the story in Acts 4 where the disciples gather to pray because they've been threatened. And as they cry out, they so stir the heart of God that God shakes the building when they're finished praying. I mean, who doesn't want to be in a Wednesday night prayer meeting where God shakes the building because of our prayers? Whether it's big events like the Sermon on the Day of Pentecost or whether it's one-on-one evangelism like the Ethiopian eunuch, the stories of people coming to faith in Jesus, of the power of Jesus on display, they make me teary-eyed. And it stirs within me, not just a, wow, Jesus was great, but a Jesus is great. A deep longing to see those sort of things happen in our day. I would love to have a service where the whole thing was interrupted by just such a move of God. We were just all brought to the altar weeping and crying out to the Lord to intervene. I would love to go out and about throughout my day and have to talk to somebody and lead people to Christ on a regular, daily, weekly basis. I would love to pray with someone who's sick, see the Lord touch them and to heal them. My, my desire to see God do big things in me, through me, and for me, it, it just only gets greater the more I read His Word. The desire to see God do big things in, through, and for our church only get greater the more I read His Word and the longer I live for Him. But that being said, I really haven't seen a lot of those things. And that would tempt me to say, Jesus doesn't do those sorts of things anymore. Because that would be easy. I mean, honestly, to say, well, that was then, this is now, God's changed, He doesn't do those things, man, that would be easy. I wouldn't have to try to get my hopes up. I wouldn't have to to long for something that's never going to happen, maybe. I could just say, it doesn't happen. Jesus is different now. And and there is, honestly, a part of me that that would do that just because of how easy it is. But there's God's Word, which tells us Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is perfect. Perfect people, perfect beings don't change because there's no need to. What Jesus did then, Jesus can do now. He is the same always. But then also you find Where Jesus says it shall be done to you according to your faith. One author I read called this the law of the kingdom. And and the idea is when we pray. We don't really believe Jesus can do what we're asking. Most often he won't. Now that's not to say he won't. I mean I think Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the universe. He can do anything he wants to do. He doesn't need our faith to do what he wants to do. But most of the time. I believe it shall be done for you according to your faith. This means it's entirely possible there are things Jesus can do and would do but won't do simply because we don't have faith he will do them. At the same time, Jesus is moved to answer when we pray in faith. But again, we we go to the idea of Jesus being sovereign. And as sovereign Lord, he has a will. And sometimes his will is not to do what we want him to do, no matter how much faith we have. 
So how does that all work? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know in any number of circumstances what Jesus will do or won't do. But what I've decided several years ago is I've decided if I'm going to be guilty of something, if I'm going to be wrong somehow, I'm going to be wrong of believing Jesus for too much. What James said about you have not because you ask not, I've decided that that's just not going to be true of me. I am not going to read God's word about what Jesus says, what Jesus says he can do, what Jesus does, and begin to look for reasons why he doesn't do those things any longer. I'm not going to to find ways to explain away what Jesus clearly says and what Jesus clearly does. I've determined if I believe Jesus for too much and he doesn't do what I've asked him to do, that's okay. He's, He's God, not me. I'm not Lord in this situation. But there won't come a day where I find out I didn't believe enough, I didn't pray enough, I didn't ask for enough, and I missed out on great things Jesus could have done, would have done, wanted to do even, but didn't do because I didn't pray and I didn't believe. And I've decided in the process to hold on tightly to the promise of Romans. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So even if he doesn't do what I'm asking him to do, the way I'm asking him to do it, somehow I won't be ashamed of my faith. Somehow the day will not come in which I feel stupid for trusting Jesus to do whatever it was I was trusting Jesus to do. I've decided that I'm going to believe God's word when it says God can do exceedingly abundantly above all I could ask or imagine. Because I think I can imagine a lot. I've always had a pretty good imagination for big things. To imagine To tell Jesus can do above and beyond all I could ask or imagine. I've decided that's big. That's far bigger than me finding reasons why he doesn't do those sort of things anymore. So I I choose to let this motivate me. To pray with expectation of Jesus doing big things in me, through me, and for me. I, I choose to let this motivate me to pray for Jesus to do big things in, through, and for our church. If if y'all knew half of what I prayed for God to do in, through, and for our church, you would probably be afraid and terrified and think I was an idiot. But I I am just not going to limit what the God who speaks worlds into existence can do. I don't have a perfect handle on how it all works yet. But I'm not going to I'm not going to fall short of believing. If Jesus really does have all the authority we looked at last week and he really has all the power we see this week, then we should live And pray with expectation of him doing exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or imagine. And then how do we minister to others? Pray with and pray for the sick to be healed. So not only do we see Jesus healing sick people, but do you know the Bible actually tells us we're supposed to pray with sick people and pray for them to be healed. Look at James chapter 5 with me. Page 932. 
Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church. And they are to pray over him. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. And we don't have a time to do a, a deep study of the passage. But there are some key points I want to mention. First, we're to pray over the sick. Not just for them, but with them. James even goes so far as to say we're supposed to anoint them with oil. Now there's a spot in the Gospel of Mark, which we'll get to at some point, when Jesus sends the disciples out, they're anointing people with oil and praying for the sick. So we're supposed to pray for the sick and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, of course, praying over them, anointing them with oil, all of this carries with it the idea of laying hands on them, doesn't it? I mean, you can't do these things from afar. So, here's the picture that this gives us. If someone's sick, they reach out to the church. And they say, hey, can, can y'all pray for me? And not just pray for me, but pray over me. And then the, the elders of the church, the leaders of the church, will meet with the person, wherever they do it. Their home, church. And they bring them up. And they anoint them with oil. And then they all lay hands on them and pray for God to heal them. But that doesn't sound very free will baptist does it? But here it is. I mean, clear. And the prayer of faith will restore, heal the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up and his committed sins, they'll be forgiven. Now, this doesn't mean the prayer of faith causes sins to be forgiven. I think instead is when you pray for someone, you bring them up, you say... Sometimes sin is a cause of sickness in our life. Not always, but it can be. The Bible makes that clear. Is there sin in your life that would hinder this healing? Is there sin in your life that may be causing this sickness? If there are, you need to confess it to your brothers and your sisters right here, right now. And confess it to the Lord. Then as they've confessed it, then as we pray, their sins are forgiven. Now, notice it goes on, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So again... It is to pray, for to confess sins and pray that they may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person, when it's brought about, can accomplish much. Now, all of this sounds amazing. Bring them in, anoint them with oil, pray over them. The prayer of faith will heal the sick. Now, it does say a prayer of faith. That's also important. Go back to the idea of as, it, as you believe, so it will be done unto you if if someone were to come and say, Stacy, would you pray for me to be healed? If I don't believe in healing, I shouldn't pray for them to be healed in that moment. I should find other people who believe God can and will do that and pray for that and have them do it rather than me. Because my, my doubts can hinder what God might do in that moment and we don't want that. So the prayer of faith will heal the sick. Now, the prayer of a righteous person has can accomplish much. At this point we can say though, but I don't man, I don't know if I have that kind of faith. Right? I mean, I've not really seen I mean I've seen some things. But if you're if you were raised the way I was kind of raised, then if you pray for somebody to be healed and they're healed and you've always been taught God doesn't do that, then it's kind of a more of a coincidence in the mighty power of God to push sickness out. So you begin to question I, I don't know. I love this next part. 
Elijah, because this is all part of the same context. Elijah was a man with a like nature of ours. He prayed earnestly it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years, six months, and he prayed again. The sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So Elijah was a guy like us. So who who should pray for the sick to be healed? Super Christians who have absolute faith God is always going to heal the sick when they pray? No. Ordinary disciples of Jesus. Elijah. Elijah was awesome. Prayed and fire fell from heaven, and yet he was not different than us. He had the same nature, same fears, same issues we have. And so any of us can and should pray with and pray for the sick to be healed. We anoint them in the name of Jesus. We pray in the name of Jesus. Now to pray in the name of Jesus is to pray with an attitude of acknowledgement that Jesus It's the only basis we have to come before God in prayer. That's a big part of what it means to pray in Jesus' name. When we pray for someone to be, for any reason, we pray for that reason. The only way I can come before you, Lord, is because of what Christ has done. This is true with healing as well. We come before the Lord with an attitude that says, Lord, I've not done anything to earn your favor. I've not done anything to earn you bringing this healing into this person's life. but, But Jesus has brought me into contact with you and now I can pray. But it's not only pray in Jesus' name. It only means pray that I know I'm the, that the only basis I have is Jesus, but for them. Like if we pray for someone to be healed, we don't pray, Lord, they're such a good person. You, you really ought to heal them. They have no merit before the Lord either. The only merit any of us have before God is Jesus. So I pray aware the only merit I have for Jesus, for God to hear my prayer, is what Christ has done. I pray for God to heal them aware the only merit they have for God to do this work in their life is what Christ has done. We don't ask God to heal someone because they've been good or because we have been good. Our only merit, their only merit, is Jesus. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who enables us to pray confidently and to pray in hope. And then once we have believed and once we have prayed... There's nothing left to do but leave it in the hands of Jesus. Now, I want to point out here, and I don't think any of us would do this, but I still always want to point this out. Don't make promises you can't keep. Don't pray for someone and then say you're healed. Unless you're the one that has the absolute power to bring healing, you should not say that because if you're wrong, the discouragement that will fall upon them could destroy their faith and destroy their lives. I'm not even sure you should say you'll be all right now. I think we should just pray and leave it in the hands of Jesus. The Lord will do what is right. Now we pray and we leave it in the hands of Jesus, but we do this knowing Jesus heals in a variety of ways, as I've already mentioned. Right? Jesus healed in a variety of ways, but he still heals in a variety of ways. Jesus sometimes heals naturally. Sometimes Jesus enables people's immune system to start working, and they get better. They're healed through that. Sometimes Jesus heals people medically. Jesus is the God is the giver of every good gift. If someone has the medical knowledge to know how to surgery to operate on somebody, to give them medicines, to make medicines that make people better, that, that's still a healing that comes from the hand of the Lord. Sometimes Jesus heals people eternally. The fact is, it's appointed for man to die. We're all going to die. And so sometimes it's not going to be his will to heal people. Sometimes it will be his will for them to go on and to be with him. Now, that can sound like a cop-out. Jesus didn't heal, they just died. But here's what I'm going to promise you. Someone that's a disciple of Jesus, who dies and goes to be with Jesus, 
wakes up in the presence of Jesus and all the glory of heaven doesn't feel shortchanged. They don't feel like Jesus let them down or failed them in any way. They're rejoicing that they have received the reward they have longed for for however long they've been a Christian. And then Jesus does heal miraculously. The same Jesus who miraculously healed people in Mark heals people now. Um, I could give stories, but we don't have time. It can be tempting to pray for healing only when we kind of sort of feel like we're full of faith or expectantly and we'll see a result. I'm sure I'm going to see a result. But I don't know if we're always going to have that or if we're even often going to have that. And, And one of the reasons we pray for people, one of our motivations to pray for them to be healed is as much compassion and love as a desire to see them healed. If someone comes to us or we go to someone and we take the time and we pray with them, we pray in Jesus' name and we pray for Jesus to heal them, the worst that can happen is they feel loved. They feel cared for. They feel there is someone in the world who is worried about them and is lifting their name to the Lord. That's the worst that can happen. Of course, the best that can happen is they can feel loved, cared for, knowing somebody's lifting their names to the Lord and experience healing all at the same time. The people who saw Jesus, or the absolute power of Jesus to, to heal over sickness, the absolute power of Jesus over sickness frees us to live and serve in confidence. The people who saw Jesus cast out demons and heal diseases were amazed at his power. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he did then, he can do now. He still has the power to deliver. He still has the power to save. He still has the power to heal. As we live and as we serve in the power of Jesus, we do strike a contrast between the rest of the world and between all the other world religions and worldviews. We don't just believe in a God who's out there somewhere. We believe in a God who is actively at work in the world around us today. We believe in a God who takes ordinary people and does extraordinary things through them for his own glory. If we live like that, if we minister to others like that, we will stand out from the world around us. May God give us the faith to do this. May God give us the confidence. I'll just say the confidence. And I'll close with this. Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can do big things. For most of us, the need isn't more faith. The need is to act on the little faith we have. We need confidence. We don't need a bigger faith to trust Jesus can save anyone. We need to act on the faith we already have and show we believe Jesus can save anyone. We don't need a bigger faith to live without being afraid of the spirit world. We need to live in light of the faith we already have to live without fear of the spirit world. We don't need a bigger faith to live and serve expectantly. We need to live in light and act on the faith we already have. We don't need a bigger faith to pray for God to heal the sick. We just need to step out and act on the faith we already have. Who knows? Who knows what the Lord will do? Who knows what He would do in our lives if 
all of us took the risk. Said, I don't care. I, I'm not, I'm not going to end up ashamed no matter what I do. If I'm doing it in faith in Jesus, according to the Word, I'll not end up ashamed and feeling stupid. I'm going to take the risk. I'm going to live by faith. And I'm going to take God at His Word. Who knows what God could do in, through, and for us. And in, through, and for our church. All right, let's stand.